0: Um, This weekend, um, Esther and I uh, gave in to my daughter, Rebecca, and watched a movie that she has been begging us um, to watch for probably over a year. Um, uh, So let's, uh, she let in, let on early that it was going to be sad. but that she really, really wanted us to see it. And so for the most part, we were like, every night, she's like, can we watch this movie? And I was like, I'm not in the mood to be sad. Let's just wait. Let's, not tonight, not tonight. Let's watch something funny. Let's watch something exciting. Uh, but she kept pressing and kept pressing. So uh, we put up uh, on, on she, we put up a good fight. But on Friday night, um, during the day, Rebecca and Eve and the younger boys, we started demoing um, our back porch, which we're completely redoing with some of that money Uncle Joe sent us. And... Um, and they actually did uh, uh, an amazing job helping do this demo. They worked really hard all day long, and I was in the mood to reward them anyway. And so Becca and Eve both um, agreed that they wanted to see the movie Five Feet Apart. Has anybody seen this, Five Feet Apart? Yeah, why, why do people make these movies? Why do we make sad movies? Any, anyone, is this fun to just like watch something that hurts? I don't, I don't get it. Um, if you don't know Five Feet Apart, uh, if you've never seen it, um, it's, it's one of those that, uh, you know, going in, this is going to be painful. This is not going to end well. This is not going to be, um, a fun ride. Uh, and, uh, but it's better than my typical kind of date night movie. I got to explain some of these to you because I have a long running track record of choosing horrible movies for me and Esther's date nights, um, and if I'm honest, I'm not always to blame for that. Years ago, my good friend, Russ Johnson, who's not here today, but he usually is, um, and I were working together. And uh, Russ knew that Esther and I had a date night coming up uh, that evening, actually. And uh, this is back in the old day. Esther and I were dirt poor. We didn't have like two nickels to rub together. So date night for us meant that after we put the kids to bed, we would I would stop by Blockbuster, rent a movie, and I would go buy some just totally trashy food, like stuff we wouldn't normally eat. Like I would get like pizza rolls that we were just going to like heat up or jalapeno poppers or little bagel bites or something ridiculous that we would throw in the oven, um, you know, like kid food that Esther and I would make for the kids fairly often, but not for ourselves. And uh, But we would do that. I'd pop it in the oven. We would get in bed. We'd watch a movie, and we would eat junk food. Um, really bad food, and that was kind of our date night. And so um, Russ knew that was tonight. I kept talking about, hey, we got date night tonight, and yada yada. I got to stop by the store, and uh, so he, uh, in a very convincing and supportive way, he recommended um, the movie City of Angels. Anybody seen this movie back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, dude, super romantic, absolute chick flick. Esther will love it perfect date night movie. I am not playing. You will thank me. And so I swing by Blockbuster. I grab the movie. I grab some bagel bites. And later that night, as Esther is not just sniffling, but actually like hard sobbing in my bedroom, I call Russ and before I even finish cussing him out, um, he starts belly laughing, like belly laughing. He's like, I cannot believe you believe me. Like he knew exactly what he was setting me up for. Uh, why make a movie like that? Why do it? And then, for another date night, I rent Eight Seconds. Anybody seen Eight Seconds? I'm kind of an old redneck. I love cowboy movies. And, and, uh, it's a movie about Lane Frost. He was a bull rider who, um, and my dad and I were actually watching the rodeo on ESPN when he got gored by a bull and died right there in the arena. Like, he, he, he got hit. Like, you knew immediately it was bad. They got the bull off of him. He kind of stood up, went like this, and then just crumpled into a pile. He was dead before the bull's horn actually punctured his heart, and he was dead before they could even get to him. Um, he's the reason they wear flak jackets now in rodeo. Anyway, his best friend, Tuff Hederman, dedicated the next season to Lane and won the gold belt buckle, whatever that is. And, and, uh, and my dad saw some of that, too. So I was kind of interested in the idea of this movie. And a friend had convinced me. But it was, the movie was... Lane just played a small part, and the movie was actually about Tough Heermans next year, and so I wanted to see more about that, so I rent it for a date night. Once again, our date ends with Esther just in these racking sobs. The whole movie was about Lane Frost. It was about how the rodeo strained his relationship with his wife. they had just gotten back together, and everything was perfect, finally, and then, yeah, he, he dies. So, another date night <laughs> ruined. So, it leaves me with the question, why do people make these movies... And why do we watch them? And I wish I had time to tell you all the different times that, uh, that uh, my date nights were ruined by a horrible movie. Okay, I got one more. I hate spoilers. I absolutely hate spoilers. And so when I read a book or, or watch a movie, I don't even read the back cover. I want to know nothing. I want to go in just a completely empty, blank, raw spectator. I want you to just, I want to be surprised. I want to go along for the ride. I don't want to know anything going in. I want to just experience the thing. And so... I'm a post, I'm looking for a movie for date night, and I see The People vs. Larry Flint. Anybody know what this is about? Yeah, I had no clue. It's Woody Harrelson, he's got an American flag over his mouth, and it says he fought, it says something like, he fought for free speech and won. I'm like, oh yeah, it looks, sounds like a patriotic movie. This is awesome, I'll get this, we like these kind of movies. I get it. First scene, set in like the 1930s or something. In the backwoods of Kentucky, and it's little kids playing us black and white, you know, setting up that he grew from nothing. You know, second scene, our whole TV, just a naked woman's butt. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. Hit pause, go to the back of my thing. I'm like, oh, he's a a pornography mogul. (laughs) Like... Back in the day, like, had the first, like, porn stuff. Yeah, I rented that. That's awesome. That was on my record. People versus Larry Flint, Chris Einzelman. That stays on my record forever. So, yeah, we wound up going, uh, having, watching Letterman for date night. So, that was fun. Um, yeah, I have a terrible, terrible track record of picking movies, um, for, uh, for date night. So, um, at least Esther didn't end up sobbing at the end of that one. Um, <laughs> But to get back to the point, why do we make sad movies? And we're actually going to discuss that uh, today. We're in our Lent series titled At Jesus, and we're looking at some of Jesus' kind of Instagram-worthy stories, the stuff that Jesus might have posted if he had lived in our day, if he was an Instagrammer um, instead of a traveling rabbi. We studied um, Jesus's at beginnings, hashtag beginnings, where um, Mark told us about how Jesus started his ministry. Uh, Mark also showed us in our second story, Jesus' hashtag no filter moment, where we see him both as suffering savior and as um, messianic king, all in kind of the same story. We had John show us a Jesus who cares about the things that matter to us. Uh, the things that are near and dear to our heart and in back to back stories, the same Jesus who uh, will overturn the tables of your life and demand our repentance and purity. And then last week, still in John, we kind of eavesdropped on Jesus's nighttime conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And we heard Jesus compare himself um, to this mysterious old story with this powerful um, conclusion that he, Jesus, came to save he didn't come to judge, but to save. And and what's more, Jesus said it very plainly, um, which as it broke down, God has always been doing. It's always been his habit um, to reveal himself. God sent the Torah as this open and honest uh, description of who he was and what he demands from us. A grace that was unheard of in that day when the gods were these arbitrary, hidden, fickle beings who ran everything but told people virtually nothing about themselves. People had no idea what these gods wanted. All you knew was that they ran everything and you had to somehow make them happy. And along comes this God who says, I will reveal to you. I will be open and authentic with you and tell you everything that it takes to please me. Everything I want from you. And when telling proved to be not enough, Because his people still couldn't obey, he decided to show them. God shows up in the flesh to walk amongst us uh, and reveal himself to us. Jesus came as this revelation, this authentic and open revelation of who God is. Jesus revealed the full glory and character of God, the writer of Hebrews said. God has always been very authentic about who he is, and he calls us to walk in that same light. Well, this week, um, we're in the only passage of this year's lectionary that isn't a story that we hear all the time. This one's a a little more obscure. It's not necessarily a popular passage, but I think it's definitely an Instagram story with a solid hashtag. We're going to be in John 12 um, if you want to read it um, in your own Bible. And we're going to start in verse 20, and it reads like this. Some Greeks had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, and they paid a visit to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. He said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter His glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world, we'll keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, obviously, this is a major moment in Jesus' life, and John's telling, um, of the Jesus, telling us about this Jesus story, um, uh, with one little phrase, like the, the, the way we know this is kind of a transitional moment is because of this one little phrase. Um, it says, some Greeks had come from Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, paid a visit to Philip, um, who was in Beth, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it and they went together to ask Jesus and Jesus replied, now the time has come. Now the time has come. Something, something has, has just happened. Some moment has just been hit. Some switch has been, just been flipped that says, This now the time has come. Doesn't that sound ominous? You know, so, what, so whatever happened just now in this story that was really easy to overlook uh, is pretty substantial to, for Jesus to make such a dramatic statement. Now the time has come. Something big just happened. It's actually a really important theme um, in John's telling of, of this story because John really puts a lot of stock in this concept of timing. It's something John talks about a lot. As John tells this story, he regularly checks in on Jesus' relationship to the timing concept. In chapter 2, um, in the story we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus is asked to help out at a wedding party. Um, and his initial response is, dear woman, that's not our problem. Um, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It's kind of a weird response, but John obviously feels it's significant enough to record. Jesus' response, my time has not yet come. Then in chapter 7, Jesus tells everyone publicly and clearly that he knew God because he was sent down from God. Um, Well, this upset the religious establishment, obviously, and they, they tried to arrest Jesus because you're not allowed to say that kind of thing. They tried to arrest him right on the spot, but John um, tacks this little tidbit onto the end of the story. He said the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. It's something John checks in all the time. happens again in chapter 8. Jesus says that God is his father. He, says, he directly relates himself to God by saying, God is my father, um, which was another grounds for arrest of Jesus. But John says again, Jesus made these statements while he was teaching Uh, in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. John keeps doing this through his entire book. No, 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 not, not yet. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Now, all these instances, John explicitly says that Jesus' time had not yet come, but he alludes to it several more times other than this. Something about this timing is important. And in today's passage is the first time it shifts. It says, Now, the time has come. Finally, all through the book, his time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. Now, his time has come. So something has just happened. Something big has just happened. It's really easy to miss. So now, finally it's come. And immediately after the statement, Jesus launches, launches into this kind of mini parable about how a kernel of grain has to die in order to produce more grain and how you have to give up your life in order to gain it. And he's clearly distressed um, because he says... He's deeply troubled, and he's contemplating, even asking God um, to save him from what's coming. So whatever is finally time for is is not necessarily a good thing. It's not like, yes, finally the time has come for something awesome. No, it's quite the opposite. Incidentally, this makes the wedding feast story interesting because we tend to read Jesus' statement about it not being his time yet um, to mean that, it wasn't time to do his miracles and start his ministry and, and do his big stuff. But in every other instance, this phrase is used by John. He's talking about his arrest and, and death. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. So I think it's more likely what Jesus is saying um, is that this is a large wedding party. This is a large public event, kind of high profile. And it might put him on the religious, religious leaders kind of radar too early. And he's like, ah, no, my time has not yet come. It's not our time. Yeah, something to think about. But we do know that something in today's passage marks a major shift uh, in this book. Chapter after chapter, John's been telling us what Jesus did and letting us know that his time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. And then, boom, all of a sudden, now the time has come. So what changed? Well, as you read the story, um, it can really only be one thing because nothing else happens um, for Jesus to make this statement other than this. Some Greeks had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Uh, And they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went to ask Jesus. And Jesus replied, Now my time has come. So nothing's happened except the arrival of these Greeks. So whatever that is, is a big deal. And that's what we're going to talk about um, a little bit. Um, So this is festival time. And Israel had three festivals a year that were called pilgrimage festivals. No matter where you lived in Israel or outside of Israel, you were supposed to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. It was the, it was, it was a pilgrimage festival. They had three a year, um, Shabbat, Pesach, uh, Pesach and, uh, and, uh, Oh, I forget the third one. Um, the feast of tabernacles, uh, the feast of Pentecost and Passover. You were supposed to come back, um, to Jerusalem to celebrate those. So this is festival time. And, uh, and Jesus, we don't even know if he went to see him. It doesn't even seem like he went to, to meet with them. He just hears that they've come and suddenly their arrival and them asking to see him marks some big timing. So what's the big deal about these Greeks? And I'm glad you asked. Um, first, uh, we need to look at who these people are because it bears heavily um, on why it's such a big deal that they showed up. When the gospel writers talk about non-Jewish people, um, they typically note them as Gentile. Um, For instance, in Mark, um, she begged uh, him to cast out uh, the demon from her daughter since she was a Gentile born in Syria of Phoenicia. Um, It it doesn't say she was a Syrian. It doesn't say she was a Phoenician. It says she was a Gentile from that place. That's the way they were usually denoted. um, Gentiles, non-Jewish people were usually denoted as a Gentile. And then where they were from. So it seems that these Greeks that come to from Philip are not actually true Greeks. John would have written, "These are Gentiles from Greece, not Greeks." Um, but he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't do that, which tends to make uh, interpreters believe. That he they, these were Jewish people from Greece. These are not Gentiles from Greece. These are Jewish people who lived in Greece. Now this is completely fits the normal Jerusalem festival time um, theme. For over 500 years, the Jews had been kind of scattered all over the Hellenistic world, all over the Greco-Roman. Um, world. They, When Israel was overthrown by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they scattered. A lot of them were taken captive, but a lot of them scattered all over um, the kind of known world at that time. It's called the Great Diaspora, is what we call it. The dispersing of the Jews. They scattered and left the Promised Land. Um, and this dispersing took them everywhere. And still, every day, they would... In fact, one of our kind of Bible heroes, Paul, was from Tarsus. He was Paul of Tarsus. Tarsus is not in Israel. Tarsus is a a Roman city. Um, And so Paul was a diaspora Jew. He was a Jew who was part of a family who had dispersed out of Israel um, and and would come back to Jerusalem for festival time. They would pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for festival time. So Paul was a diaspora Jew. Most likely, these are diaspora Jews. Um, They live... Everywhere. We talked um, a couple weeks ago about why this was, why there were money changers in the temple. Uh, part of it was because diaspora Jews from all over uh, the Greco-Roman world would come back for festival time be- carrying all different kinds of money, and so they would have to have money changers. They would turn it back into temple gold, something you could use in the temple. In fact, a lot of coins had uh, uh, Caesar's image stamped on them. It wouldn't have been okay to use that in the temple because it has an image on it. It has like a uh, an idol kind of stamped into it, so they would convert that into gold you could use in the temple for an offering. And so they had money changers because all these diaspora Jews from all over the kingdom would come back to Jerusalem at festival time. So most likely, um, it is. these are not Gentile Greeks. These are Jewish people from Greece. Um, and so it would have been completely normal to assume these are just more Jews that want to call them, talk about them. In fact, in Acts 6, we see a problem with this. In Acts 6, um, when they hired the very first um, kind of church staff, Uh, they, the, it was because of a dispute that broke out and the dispute was between, um, Jewish widows and what they call Hellenistic widows or non Hebrew speaking widows. It reads like this, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there was rumblings of discontent. The Greek believers complained about the Hebrew believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily offerings of food. So, you've got diaspora Jewish widows who grew up not speaking Hebrew, who grew up outside of Israel, who, in that festival, when, when, when Peter comes out of, uh, the upper room at Pentecost, on the, on the Pentecost feast, and they preached to all these different people from all around the world. Those are probably all Jews from all over the kingdom who had come back for the Pentecost feast. And a lot of them didn't even speak Hebrew. Like they came back to Israel during feast, But they, you know, these are Greek speaking people. And a lot of them got saved, stayed, and the widows were being fed off of the offerings. And And they were complaining, saying, hey, your people are giving the Jewish widows more than they're giving the Greek widows. These are all believers. So they hired a bunch of church staff. To fix the problem. So this is totally normal. Happens all through the Bible that you've got kind of two classes of people. You've got the Jews that are Hebrew-speaking Jews from Israel. And you've got Jews that are Greek-speaking Jews from the Hellenistic world somewhere. Okay, that's all the nerd stuff. So Greeks and Hebrews, both believers, gathered in the same place. So I believe what's happening in today's passage is some of the Jews from Greece want to meet Jesus. These are Jewish people who want to meet Jesus. They come back. They come back for festival time, the first thing on their mind is we want to see, we want to meet this guy that everybody, apparently all over the Roman kingdom, is talking about. Word has gotten back, something special is happening here. We want to meet Jesus. We travel back to Jerusalem for festival, but what we really want to do is meet this guy. And, uh, and so these these diaspora Jews want to meet Jesus. Why on earth is this such a big deal that I belabor it this long? Again, glad you asked. The Diaspora um, was not a surprise to anybody. The scattering of the Jews was, didn't, uh, didn't sneak up on, on anyone. All the way back in Deuteronomy, as Moses was giving out his blessings and curses that we talked about, um, I think it was last week, um, he told Israel that, uh, that they would disobey God. Like he, he's like, if you'll do, if you'll obey, this is what'll happen. If you disobey, this is what'll happen. Just so you know, you're going to, you're going to disobey. Like he actually tells them in the thing. Um, and, uh, and his terrible prophecy did come with a twist of hope. Like he told them what was going to happen. There's no chance you guys are going to obey. And when you do disobey, terrible things are going to happen. But, and he gives them this little bit of hope. He says, If at the time you and your children return to the Lord, once you're scattered, he tells them they're going to be scattered and terrible things are going to happen. He said, if at the time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul, all the commands I've given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you. Even though you have been banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will possess that land again. Then you will make even then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Now, obviously, as Israel did exactly what Moses said they would do, uh, and they sat on the brink of destruction before they were scattered. They're they're disobeying God. The kings are ruling and nothing's going well. Um, this group of people called the prophets come in and started to go, Hey, this is exactly what God said not to do. This is not going to work out. Well, I'm telling you, we're going to get our butts kicked. And, and they, they keep calling out these warnings over and over and over again, um, that judgment is coming and the people completely ignore, but the prophets have this, this voice, from the past, this, this prophecy of Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy that is shaping their imagination as they as they wonder what is going to happen to Israel. They're going exactly the opposite of what God has said. These prophets um, know that what's happening is not good. They have the ability to read the newspaper and go, this can't be good. We're going in the wrong direction. Come on, we've all done this and we know what this feels like to go. There's no way this can end well. They're saying it. But while they're saying it. Their imagination is also grabbing on to this verse that Moses talked about. There will come a day when God will gather us together again, when he will bring us all back together again. Almost every prophet says something about this promise, about being scattered, about being recollected. I, Isaiah said it best. He said this. In that day, the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnants of his people. Those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylon and Hamath and other distant coastlands. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. So Isaiah grabs this idea that Moses mentioned, this recollecting, this regathering of the Jewish people. And he says, in that day, when the heir of David's throne shows up, it'll happen. He'll start regathering his people. So Isaiah makes a direct connection to this heir of David, being a banner of salvation to the entire world. We're very familiar with that concept. And gathering the scattered people of Israel. So, here we are back in the Gospel of John. And Jesus and his disciples are basically hiding... Be, uh, against the wishes of his uh, disciples, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. They had they had just narrowly escaped death a couple chapters ago. They go all the way back up to Galilee. They kind of get out of the hot zone. And then Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is very, very sick, actually dies before they get down there. And Jesus wants to go back. And if you ever read that, that story, his disciples are going, are you kidding me? We just barely got away. You want to go back? And Jesus is like, we have to go back. And so they, they go back. He raises Lazarus from the dead which we find out is a huge high-profile miracle that really tells everybody Jesus is back. So they're hiding. They're hiding in Bethsaida um, from, the, from, the, uh, from the Pharisees and from the religious leaders um, who want Jesus dead. And, uh, and now, in hiding, some scattered Jews from elsewhere get the word that Jesus is here, and they come and say, we want to see Jesus. And it's like this huge puzzle piece that Jesus almost seems to be waiting for drops into place. Jesus lived in the full awareness of Moses' words and Isaiah's words. It's like he can hear the prophet's voice in his ear all the time saying, I will draw back my scattered people, the people of God, back to the promised land. And they will come to Jesus. And Jesus knows when he hears that they're here. That God is gathering these scattered people and they're coming back to Jerusalem, not just for festival, but because they know Jesus is there. And Jesus knows. I was waiting for this. I knew the time was coming. The time has come. This was the peace we were waiting on. And it's here. What exactly does it mean for Jesus to have his time come? I am glad you asked. Jesus responds to the... Uh, Realization that his time has come with this phrase, now my soul is deeply troubled. And this makes sense when you consider that Jesus is talking about a grain having to die in order to multiply and and how you have to lose your life in order to gain it. But even more, we would have to assume that Isaiah, the one who talked about the gathering of this people, the one who, who spoke so clearly of the heir of David being the key to this movement, Jesus' mind is in Isaiah right now. He's thinking about this prophecy of when the heir of David shows up, all the nations, all the scattered Israelites will, will come back. Because that same prophet that spoke so clearly about the heir of David, drawing the scattered people of Israel back to Jerusalem, also gave us the clearest picture of what that prophet would look like. That same heir of David. It actually reads like this. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root to dry ground. There's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing that would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried, our sorrows that weighed him down. He thought his troubles were pun- and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, but his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, he'd never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted amongst the rebels. He bore the sins of many, and interceded for rebels. I'm sorry that's kind of long, but the entire chapter is so good. Did you hear that last part? When his life has made an offering for sin, he will make many. He will have many descendants. And. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. In today's passage, Jesus isn't kind of making up a, a, an impromptu metaphor of a grain dying to reproduce. He's quoting Isaiah. He knows what Isaiah said about the scattered Jews coming home. He knows what Isaiah said about the coming suffering that's in his future. That Jesus does not look forward to. And he knows what Isaiah said about the effect of that suffering on people like you and like me. The moment that Philip and Andrew say, hey, there's someone here to see you. Jesus is in Isaiah. And just like Isaiah wrapped up this incredibly heavy and bizarre and weirdly accurate chapter with the words, I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. John uses that same juxtaposition throughout the, entire of his, the, the entirety of his telling of the Jesus story. Isaiah depicts a man beaten and abused, downcast and tormented, and then says he's honored like a victorious soldier. We talked last week about Je- how Jesus said to Nicodemus he would be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. This lifted up is the same Greek word used to mean glorified or honored. He's lifted up. It's not just physically lifted, like picked up. John is like, he will be lifted up and honored like this snake. And then he says, he's speaking of the manner of his death, the cross. <laughs> it's this weird juxtaposition between honor and pain. Between glory and suffering. In today's passage, Jesus actually says, right before the whole spiel on dying, now the time has come. For the Son of Man to enter into his glory. That sounds awesome. Now has come for Jesus to enter into his exaltation, his magnification, or maybe his lifting up. Which creates this weird tension between glorification, an obvious good thing, of Jesus being lifted up, and the cross, an obvious bad thing. This is a major theme through the book of John. Every gospel writer has a way of portraying this kind of upside-down kingdom, the weird nature of Jesus' kingdom. Things like, if you want to receive, give. That's backwards. If you want to be blessed, be poor in spirit. If you want to really overcome your enemy, if you want to really kick butt, turn the other cheek. Every Gotharite has a way of portraying how weirdly backwards the kingdom is. If you want to know who is the greatest, a couple of them say, if you want to know who to really, really honor. And then he looks over and picks up the overlooked in the society, a child. And he goes, be like this. Be like the bottom. In that culture, the child was the bottom of the rank. He's like, if, if you want to know who's on top, be like this. Be like a child. Constantly the gospel writers are showing us that the kingdom of God is upside down from what we know. But John puts it the most blunt. If you want to live, die. If you want to be glorified and honored and lifted up, take up your cross. In fact, John doesn't just use this concept to describe Jesus' death. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter and Jesus are having this conversation uh, about what it looks like for Peter to follow Jesus now that he's denied him and then been accepted back, and they're talking about what this might look like. And John answers this funny with adds this funny little commentary. He said, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. Jesus tells Peter what kind of death, Peter's going to have to glorify God. There it is again. Death and glory. You can't get much more upside down than that. You know why I think we like sad movies? Because I think our souls are tuned into the fact that suffering and glory are somehow tied together. I think at some deep subconscious level, we know that in this life, glory and pain are go together. We try to pretend like it's not true. We chase happiness and bliss with all of our might. We hunt for pleasure like it's air. But in our guts, we, knows where, we know where that leads. I mean, look at our world. We've spent all of human existence, but definitely the past 400 years, from the beginning of the Enlightenment to today, trying to make mankind the satisfaction and fulfillment of that creature, of the human creature, the center of all of Creation and existence. We elevated man above everything and man's knowledge and man's happiness and man's satisfaction above everything else. And, and what has it gotten us? We're, we're mean and hateful. We've trashed the planet. We're, we keep fighting wars and killing each other. We play God on a daily basis. We self medicate and we numb out. We've created every level of debauchery to slake every kind of human desire. <laughs> this isn't even in my notes. But when photography was created, the very first photograph in history, when they first figured out, I think they were called daguerreotypes at the time. They would put a photograph on a piece of metal. The, the, the creation of the photograph, two weeks later, after the creation of photography, the very first person was arrested for pornography. <laughs> Brand new technology, and somebody's like, I could get nasty with that. The very first person, I'm not even going to talk about what was in the picture, because it is unthinkable. It took two weeks to ruin that perfectly good new technology. And that's what we've done. And are we happy? It'd be one thing if we did all this and we were sitting here happy. If the world was happy. And then you might be able to argue that it was all worth it. But are are we happy as a people? Which begs the question, why? Why are we here? Why do we do this? I guarantee it's not for your happiness. We've chased that. It didn't work. It's not for your safety. It's not even for your own life and existence. We've been pursuing those things and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. So why are we here? And I think Jesus bumps into that question in today's passage he says now my soul is deeply troubled should i pray father save me for this hour but this is the very reason i'm here why am i here for this father bring glory to your name should i seek my own should i should i seek my own comfort first should i don't i deserve happiness and then jesus reminds us we live in an upside down kingdom Bring glory to your name. Jesus responds to that answer. Why am I here? Why? The answer is to glorify God. Period. And when that is the goal, the center of your life, you've been able to consider things like taking up your cross. That's not about you. Like you're like, what is the goal of my life? What is the what, what is it all about? I've titled today's message, Hashtag Goals. You guys have seen this one, right? 95 million times on Instagram. Hashtag Goals. People use it when they see a nice car that they want in their future. They're like, Hashtag Goals. Maybe they see this couple doing something super romantic. Hashtag Relationship Goals. Or maybe they see someone in really good shape in the gym and they're like, Hashtag Goals. I'm going to look like that someday. This is where Jesus is so different. If Jesus were on Instagram today, you'd see a picture of a cross. Maybe a bloody crown of thorns, a shredded back from whiplashes, mockings and threats. Hashtag goals. This is why I'm here. This is what it's about. This is why I came. Should I ask God to let me free? I don't want to do this. No, this is why I'm here. Hashtag goals. So how do I respond to this? If you're a logical thinker, track with me for a second. If if we spend 100% of our time and energy trying to meet our needs, trying to meet our own needs, and everybody does that, 100% of us spend 100% of our time trying to meet our own needs, there's nobody to, 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 to help us because we're all busy trying to meet our own needs. So not only can you help meet nobody else's needs, nobody can help you meet your needs because all of us are busy trying to meet. Our own needs. But if 100% of us spend 100% of our time serving others and thinking of others and caring for others, then, then someone would have to be the recipient of all that goodness. I mean, it's a weird way to think about it, but if we all live to perpetually give, we would by default also all have to perpetually receive. Because someone has to receive all that giving. When we all give, we all receive. And this is the beauty of this passage. Jesus is very distressed. He certainly did not want to suffer. This is a sad and ominous scene in the movie of Jesus. This is the moment when some cue is triggered. The music changes to something dramatic. And all of a sudden, a somber note drops into the protagonist's voice. And he says, the time has come at last. Like, Make no mistake, Jesus is very upset about what has just happened. And then it's almost like he's reminding himself, almost like he's giving himself a little pep talk. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But if its death will produce, but its death will produce many more kernels, and a plentiful harvest of new lives, it's almost like he's talking to himself. Like I know what's coming, the time has come. But if I die, it will bring good things. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Because he was condemned to it. It wasn't like the father was like, dude, there's no other way. you got to go. That's not how it happened. Jesus came for this purpose because he knew what he would gain. The writer of Hebrews said it this way. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross. He didn't endure the cross because he was tough. He didn't suffer because he was a masochist. Jesus went through hell because he was really excited about the prospect of you and me worshiping Him and serving Him on days like today. We don't do good because it's a duty or because we think it's a good Christian thing to do. We don't serve and love people because the Bible tells us to. We do good because we can practically taste the better world that we would create in the name of our Savior if we would all just go about doing good. It makes a better world. And we want to be excited about that world. Do it for the joy set before you. Yes, Jesus is bummed about the fact that the time of his suffering is about there. But he's much more filled with joy at the prospect of this bountiful harvest of souls. If he will just allow his seed to die. He promises that same joy to you and me if if we'll take our eyes off ourselves and off our issues and off our own safety and off our own happiness and off our own rights if we will broaden our vision to a joyful harvest, if we'll simply give up control of our lives and let God pour us out like a drink offering since I've been on this theme today about Esther, the time she has kind of burst into tears at totally inappropriate moments um, let me tell you one more we were uh, we were singing during worship one Sunday. Um, and we're in it, hands in the air, kind of doing that shout singing thing at the top of our lungs, jumping up and down. And when I say we, I mean I, Esther wasn't doing any of those things. Um, we're deep in worship, and I glance over and Esther's got tears just streaming down her face, like hard crying in the middle of worship. And uh, And I'm thinking she's having this awesome, deep, personal moment with God. Um, so being the mature specimen, I waited till we were in the car to start going, what happened, what happened, what happened, what happened? Asking her what was with uh, all the waterworks during worship. And because uh, I can't wait to find out what amazing affirmation God has just given her. And, and all she'll say is, I'm not ready to talk about it. And she sounds angry. And it was just not what I thought was going on at all. So finally, I can't remember how long later, um, after I had kind of, Chipped her down and worked tirelessly to get this out of her. Um, She tells me, God wants us to forgive your best friend all the money he owes us. And I don't want to do it, even though I know I have to. I had loaned my best friend a bunch of money that we simply did not have um, to loan. But um, and he was having trouble paying us back. It was supposed to be a really short, like week long thing. He had a check I knew he deposited. We just framed a house and a big check went in the mail, went in the account. He needed it before it had time to clear. And so I gave him a bunch of money I didn't really have. And he was going to pay me back when the check cleared. we come to find out there was enough stuff written on the account already. that the second the check cleared, it disappeared. There was nothing less to pay me back. So it, it was putting some strain on the relationship. We didn't really have the money, but I gave it anyway. And, and, uh, and I knew that kind of stuff was really important to Esther, so I hadn't even considered going this route. I was still trying to get my money back. And Esther's response sounded like Jesus. My soul is deeply troubled. Father, is there any way this cup can pass from me? But at Esther's prompting, we we really at God's prompting through Esther, we obeyed. And and I went to my friend. I was like, dude, I don't want you to pay us back. I feel like God has really spoken to us that we're supposed to release this debt. And so we're going to. Like, He was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to pay. I was like, well... That's on you, but we have forgiven it. It's over. I don't want don't to worry about it anymore. And, uh, and within a few months, it was like heaven's windows opened and blessings just started dumping on us out of nowhere. Not only I had to take out a small loan to cover the amount I gave him. Not only had we paid that back, but God gave us enough to put all new siding on our house and, and get a couple toys that we wanted. Like God honored that obedience and just dumped Blessings on us. The reason I think we like sad movies and sad songs and stuff like that is because I think at a deep gut level, we know that resurrection follows death. We know they go together. We understand that a seed needs to die to bring forth fruit. We know that God never asks us to die without promising us new life. And even though we fear death, of course we do. Jesus feared death. Even though we feared death, we know it's the road to life. I'm not talking about our bodies dying. I'm talking about those moments when we have to walk a road that we don't want to walk. A road that feels like death. Death of a business, death of a dream, death of a marriage, death of a vision for how we thought things were supposed to be. We hate it, and we're supposed to hate it. Death was not supposed to be part of our story. But at some level, we know that death comes before resurrection. Welcome to the upside down kingdom. So the way I'd love to respond to this message is I would love to invite you to die. That part of you that wants everything your way, that that part of you that wants to protect yourself, that part of you that wants to serve or be served rather than to serve. Let that die. And maybe for you, your entire life is about doing what other people want. You never speak up about what you want. Maybe dying for you means saying something. Whatever that self-protective part of your soul that doesn't want to endure the pain of speaking up and putting your own heart out into the world. Let that die. This is Lent. This is wilderness. This is not supposed to be easy. Give in to that and join the upside down kingdom. Find someone to serve. Find someone to bless. Find someone to love on. Even if it costs you something that you could never get back. Die. In fact, before I um, totally forget, I called a few tax people and a mathematician um, just to make sure that I had this right, and to make it easy for you in case you're not good at this. But 10% of 1,400 is 140. In case you need that information, (laughs) just wanted to make that as easy as possible. So when Uncle Joe sends you that check, just make your tithe show, make your tithe check out to Pastor Chris Goes to Tahiti Fund, and um, no. I'm totally kidding. But what happens if you set a little bit of your stimulus check back to, for generosity? To do good to somebody. And then, and then just go hunting for someone to bless. For someone to, to help. For someone to give to. And if you don't know how much, I suggest start with a lower amount. And, and raise it in your mind until it stings a little. When it stings a little, and you're like, ooh, ooh. That's probably what you're supposed to give. If it doesn't cause a little bit of death, if it doesn't cause some little piece of you to die to give it, then it's probably not enough to to to, to plant and, and flourish and bring forth harvest. Take it to that point of stinging just a little bit. Let that seed create a little bit of death so that it can bring forth much fruit. What if we all choose to die? Of course, I'm not talking about literal death. Don't make it creepy. But what if we, what if we died to ourselves and decided to treat others like they were more important? What if we stopped putting so much energy into protecting ourselves and instead looked forward to the beauty that comes if we just surrender to the Father's will? I, I believe Jesus' words would come to pass that if we would die, we would actually multiply. Let's go to the table.